Now let me read to you, beginning at verse 19, I'll read through verse 25, of that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired. It's the very mind of God as black words on a white page. So you listen. I mean, my words aren't inspired, but these are. And they read like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Dear ones, I would never, um, ever knowingly or intentionally insult your intelligence but what i'm about to say risks doing that so uh hear me out to the end and i and i think you'll uh know that i didn't do that guys um the first word of our text the first word over 19 is so important and it's important for a couple of reasons what word, Jimmy? The word, therefore. That word. Um, it's important first because with that word, therefore, we are brought now into a, a, an entirely new section of the book of Hebrews. He has been doing one thing since chapter 4. He is done with that doctrinal section of the book. And we are now being introduced to a new section of the book, and we are introduced via the word, therefore. After all of that repetition, the author is finally ready to, to make some applications. Um, that, that in itself is important. Um, that word, therefore, introduces, although it's in the middle of a chapter, it, it introduces a new section of the letter to the Hebrews. But that's not the big reason why the word therefore is so important. Gang, that word therefore is just one more illustration as to why Christianity is so vastly different from every other world religion. Yeah, that's right. The word therefore is an illustration of why Christianity is so completely different from all other world religions. Let me explain myself. In Islam, 
you have the five pillars of righteousness. And if you observe those, you get rewarded. Hinduism has what it's called the eightfold path. And if you follow that eightfold path, you get rewarded. Judaism has ten commandments. And if you obey those ten commandments, then you get rewarded. Now, guys, in sharp and utter contrast, Christianity and only Christianity reverses that order. Christianity says that being precedes doing. Let me say it another way. This is the way that this is the sentence I use so often on Wednesday nights. The indicative precedes the imperative. Let me say it another way. Essence precedes function. Guys, um, I do what I do because of who I am. Chapter 10, verse 19 is just another illustration of that. Um, the author has, has completed his elaborate argument that you know we, we've talked about, is even repetitious at times. But having completed that argument, it is now and only now that he exhorts, look at the text, the brothers. He exhorts his audience to live in a certain way and to do certain things. He's going he's to mention three, and we're going to go over those in a minute. All of those three exhortations are introduced by the, by the words, let us. You'll see it in a minute. <clears throat> but in essence, what the author says is, since we have this relationship, look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, who does? The brothers. He's writing to Christians and he says, <clears throat> in light of the fact that we have this relationship with God, I want you to do certain things. Gang, do you see that? Do you see how that is utterly different than every other world religion? Guys, you got to get this. Um, 
before we as Christians ever live a certain way, um, we are given in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament, we are given an expansive description of the gospel privileges that have been earned for us by Jesus Christ. The author, in essence, says something like this. Ladies and gentlemen, on the basis of everything that I've said thus far, or, said differently, in light of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, or, said differently, being aware of who I am in Christ, therefore. Guys, you've got to see that. You, you've got to get that. The author of the book of Hebrews, not just him, the whole, all of Christianity, it never calls us to do anything until the relationship with Christ is there. Unlike all other religions. They say do this and get the relationship. Follow the Eightfold Path. Five pillars. Ten commandments. Do those things and they will result in relationship. You know, guys, this paragraph that we're looking at this morning just may be the center of gravity in the entire book of Hebrews. But before this book of Hebrews ever calls us to do anything, it explains to us who we are in Christ. Essence precedes function the indicative precedes the imperative we obey in light of the relationship that we enjoy we do not obey so that we can produce the relationship um Christianity never says, do this and get. Christianity says, be this and do. Gang, living a Christian life grows out of my first having become a Christian. I don't perform myself into a relationship. I perform out of and because of an already existing relationship. Guys, you've got to get that. That is the essence of Christianity over against and compared to and different from every other world religion. You know, 
people today are, are we, we've got a world full of rich young rulers. Do you remember that story, the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, <coughs> uh, Jesus, um, I'd like to ask you a question, Jesus. Uh, and the question is this, uh, Jesus, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just give me the rules. Tell me what the laws are so that I can get on with saving myself. Guys, Christianity has rules. But none of those rules save you. And the rules that you're going to see in this text or the exhortations that you're going to see in this text are being taught to the brothers. Do you see it? They're already in the relationship with God through Christ. Now, because you are, we want to live like this. Every other, in fact, the default mode of most people in the world is show me the rules, give me the laws, I'll go out and keep them, and I'll save myself. That might be true in Islam, it might be true in Hinduism, it might be true in Judaism, but it is not true in Christianity. And all of that is illustrated in the word, therefore. After all of that six chapters of extensive argument about gospel privileges earned for us by Christ, he now says, therefore, in light of that, brothers, let's... uh, Let's go live this thing out. Now, you got it? Because that's vitally important. Guys, um, he, he is re-mentioning, um, you know, he, he starts off by saying, brothers, since we have confidence. And then he gives us three applications. And they are all introduced with the words, let us, verse 22, let us, verse 23, let us, verse 24. Those are applications. Now, gang, the great blessing of the gospel is access to God secured for us by Jesus Christ. That that, that access has just been mentioned again in verses 19, 20, and 21. Um, And in light of that, in light of this access... He calls us to something. He's speaking to the brothers. All right, brothers. In light of who we are. Let us. See it? Gang, the first one is in verse 22. Um, Let us draw near. 
um, the first privilege, numero uno, or maybe, maybe call it the first rule that doesn't save, but the first responsibility of this new heart that I've got that belongs to Jesus, the chief response of the converted heart is worship. Let us draw near. Now guys, imagine what he could have said. He could have said, "Mm, uh, uh, the the greatest responsibility that we have now is to love our wives better. He didn't say that. The greatest responsibility we have is to obey the Ten Commandments. He didn't say that. The greatest responsibility that we have is to tithe. He doesn't say that. He says, now that we know who we are, let us draw near. Tell me, guys. Do you have a heart for this? That is what we're doing right now. Um, do you have a heart for this? Or are you here only to check off some box? Or to quiet your conscience? Or to appease the deity? Let me show you something else. Because verse 22 also explains, I think, why this is so unappealing to people. It it explains, I think, why, why sometimes you have to drag yourself in here. Look at the language of verse 22. True heart, sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. What kind of picture are you getting? So you're hooked on porn, are you? In the midst of an affair? You're cooking some kind of funny books down at the office? Hmm. I bet you don't really enjoy this. This is the profile of a believer who's come to worship. With hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Pure hearts, pure water. Um, gang, when, when one understands what God did to save us, the extremes to which he has gone to save us, the first response of the converted heart is to worship. You know, we've gone over this before, but I'm telling you, even our concept of worship is all messed up. We have the idea that, that you're the audience and, um, and that I'm the performer and 
God is the prompter of the performer before the audience. That's all so messed up. Guys, we're seated before an audience of one this morning. The audience is not me and it's not you. The audience is God. And you know what you are? You're the performers. And I'm the prompter. Does this come hard to you? Is this this thing that we're doing here, is it unappealing to you? Because according to this this inspired word, the, the first responsibility of the converted heart is that we draw near. We want to get closer to him. I got to move on. Look at the second one. This is the second let us. This is the second application. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. The, the second application is don't waver. Let's hold fast. Gang, we as Christians, we believe in some things that haven't happened yet. We, we, are looking, we are longing for things that are not yet ours. And the admonition here, the exhortation here is, don't give that up. Um, actually, that's what we have to offer the world. That hope in these things that we have not yet received. And how... How is it that we can go on hoping? Uh, because he who promised is faithful. Tell me, my friends, has the Lord ever made a promise to you that he didn't keep? Has he ever failed you? If he has, then walk away. Give it up. Don't come back here next week. But is this not more true? That even in our losses there have been gains? You know why that is? Because he is faithful. So don't waver on those promises. The, ones that he's, the one who made those promises is faithful. And then the third, verse 23, verse 24, excuse me. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the, to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. The third application of the converted heart is the stirring up of one another. Gang, one of the reasons that we meet like this on a weekly basis is that we have a mutual responsibility. Um, It is because of of a, a need that we have to be mutually stirred up. 
And ladies and gentlemen, you cannot do that at home in your pajamas in front of the television set. One of the words that we use around here, or phrases that we use around here a whole lot is called life together. Gang, no discipleship will ever take place apart from the church. Discipleship is organic. It's not programmatic. You don't sign up for some program and at the other end you come out as a disciple. Gang, there is to be among us something that one commentator called this, and I love this phrase, this is not mine. He called it an affectionate incitement. Not excitement. An affectionate incitement. Look, look at what he says. <laughs> um, to stir up one another um, to love. Guys, love is hard. It's hard in marriage, isn't it? But it's even harder in a church. But guys, if we were to observe that one piece of instruction, we would eliminate all church splits, which hasn't happened in this church yet. But there needs to be an affectionate incitement to love one another. The other thing is to love and good works. God's good works are hard too. And so we, we come in here week after week and we're encouraged to do those hard things. You know, guys, in, in the, we crave relationships. I remember when I was doing singles at Central Church years ago and I would invite singles to, my, to the singles Bible study and they would say, well, you know what, Dr. Oh, I'd really like to come if I can find somebody to come with me. I need a wingman, you know. We feel so naked when we're alone, and yet some of you are trying to live this Christian life alone. And tell me, what did you do out there in Las Vegas when nobody was looking? You know those things that you wouldn't do here. Gang, <clears throat> this incitement, this, infect, this affectionate incitement is the responsibility of all of us, not, not just the, you know, the, the extroverted or the really friendly or the outgoing or the clergy. Actually, in fact, my job is to teach this book. This affectionate incitement, that's your job. And I, I, th this thing that's being exhorted here doesn't happen by accident. It, it necessitates consistent togetherness. It, it requires a serious, consistent commitment to the life that is pulsating within the local church. You know, it's interesting to me that... Missing church. You know, finding reasons not to come. 
That was the problem in the first century because the author of the Hebrews has to address it. And they didn't have soccer tournaments. You know, people say to me, oh, but Dr. Young, um, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And there's truth in that, and, and I, I get what you're, saying, or what you're saying. But tell me, you don't have to go home to be married either. But tell me what kind of marriage you've got when you don't go home. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. I got to be here. I got to hear that old, old story of Jesus and his love. And the people who love this Savior, they love to hear it over and over and over again. I need to be washed all over again with that old, old story. The gospel obligates us to a regular washing of an affectionate incitement. You know, guys, um, for years I taught Pilgrim's Progress in my grace group. Some of you have been in my grace group, and I taught it for probably 20 years. And um, I, I taught it until I absolutely bored people to tears. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> and I decided to change, and I've been changed for the last three years or so. But I love Pilgrim's Progress. You know what that is. It's the extended metaphor about the Christian life. Let me tell you just a little bit about Pilgrim's Progress, and we're done. Pilgrim's Progress um, is about a man whose name ultimately becomes Christian <clears throat> who is living in the city of destruction. And so he leaves the city of destruction and he heads to the heavenly city. It's about becoming a Christian and headed in heaven. You know, that kind of thing. But it's only in chapter 5 that Christian gets converted. Um, chapter 5 is entitled The Cross and the Hill of Difficulty. And in chapter 5, Christian uh, goes up the hill, he sees the cross, his burden rolls off his back and tumbles into a hole, never to be seen ever again. So Christian gets converted in chapter 5. Guess what chapter 6 is about? The Porter's Lodge. Do you know what that is? That's the church. Guess what chapter 7 is? It's about the study and the armory in the porter's lodge. It too is about the church. And this is one of the sentences that is repeated a couple of times in chapter 6. Listen to this. This is right from Bunyan. This house was built by the Lord of the hill, Jesus, for the relief and security of the pilgrims. Let me read it again. This house, the Porter's Lodge, the church, was built by the Lord of the hill for the relief and the security of the pilgrims. So was this house. 
This house was built for the relief and the security of the pilgrims. And you must not neglect it. And I am not talking about your money. The Lord of the hill, after he died for us, he raised this thing up called the church. And nobody grows spiritually without her. So now that you've come to Christ, let us draw near. Let us maintain a steadfast hope. And let us affectionately incite one another. And we do those things not to become a Christian. We do those things because we are Christians. Our Father, I I thank you for your word which is so relevant it is descriptive of the very things with which we trouble are with which we are troubled so would you would you use this portion of it to stimulate us to the the very things needed for the maintenance of our souls a um, a healthy worship a uh, steadfast hope and an affectionate incitement that takes place in our church Do that by the power and the Holy Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name.